Let us pray. O God of unchangeable power and eternal light, look favorably upon thy whole church, that wonderful and sacred mystery, and by the tranquil operation of thy perpetual providence, carry out the work of man's salvation, that things which were cast down may be raised up, and that all things may return into unity through him by whom all things were made, even thy Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, welcome back. We have had a lengthy break from our study of the Gospel of John uh, due to the Easter celebration, Holy Week, Easter Week, the Bishop's Visitation, the Tea Room, the Lawsuit. Uh, It's just been one thing after another. And here we are returning finally to the Gospel of John, which has been our ongoing study. And lo and behold, this is our last Sunday school before the summer recess. So, well, I'm delighted to hear you moan. I mean, you know, it could be, thanks be to God, or something like that. So I'm grateful for the fact that uh, you're sorry to see us come to an end. Um, But we will be back, God willing, in September. Um, But my encouragement would be for you to go ahead and continue to read through the Gospel of John at least have somewhat of a working knowledge of the text as we come back in the fall as we continue our study. But we are going to not spend uh, this last class doing a Q&A, which is normally what we do at the end of a semester, but I do uh, want to return to John's text. And it's appropriate, even though we're breaking for the summer, what we're going to take a look at today I think is very appropriate for all of us as we head into this period in which is a time for many people of vacation, a time of traveling, a, a, town, a downtime in many respects. I think what we're going to take a look at today, we started to take a look at over a month ago, uh, will be helpful, I think beneficial to all of us. So if you have your Bibles, and again, I'm going to continue to say it until you start obeying and uh, <laughs> bringing them along with you, your Bibles. If you have your Bibles, please open them to John chapter 1, beginning at verse 19. And we're going to go ahead and read really through the rest of this chapter so that when we come back in the fall, God willing, uh, we can start in chapter 2. So John chapter 1. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. They said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, 
But for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. All I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Kephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law, also the prophets, wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? I tell you, you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, we said that all four of the Gospels begin in a different way. Matthew and Luke begin with birth narratives, genealogies. Mark's Gospel begins with Jesus' public ministry, his baptism in the Jordan River. John's Gospel begins by going back into the mists of time and talking about the pre-existent logos, the word by whom all things were made. All four of the Gospels begin in a slightly different way. But there is a point where all of their narratives come together. And that is with this figure that we are introduced to, John the Baptist. And we say that John the Baptist is an interesting figure for a couple of reasons. First of all, Jesus describes him as the greatest man ever born of women. And we said the last time we were together, when those words come out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is the highest of praise. I mean, we all want to be praised, particularly by people we admire, but can you imagine Jesus saying, this is the greatest man ever born of women? That is an extraordinary thing. So John is significant for that reason. He's also significant because he was the forerunner. He was the one who paved the way, who prepared the way for the coming Messiah. 
But perhaps most important of all, John is significant for us because John was a very powerful and what's more, a very effective witness for Jesus Christ. In fact, he was born for that very purpose. We're told that John was filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. He was an extraordinary individual. There are fantastic circumstances surrounding his birth, miraculous elements surrounding his birth, in the same way that there were miraculous elements surrounding Jesus' birth. But what's odd is that while John is such a significant figure, while he had such a profound impact, while he is that hinge, if you will, between the Old Testament period and the New Testament period, between the Old and the New Covenant, John appears on the scene for a relatively brief period of time. There's much more in the New Testament about Peter and the Twelve. There's much more in the New Testament about Paul. Not nearly as much about John. He appears briefly on the scene and then he sort of just fades away, like our preacher today, Ryan Street, who was here for three wonderful years, and then in the middle of COVID sort of disappeared. But we found him, and we brought him back. So you'll have a chance to hear him today. But that's the way it was with John the Baptist. He just sort of fades out of the picture. And yet that's exactly what he said he had come to do. He said, I must decrease that the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, may increase. We need to take a good hard look at John the Baptist, even though he's only briefly on the scene, because he sets us an example of how you and I are to live our lives as Christian people. We are called, like John, to be witnesses to Jesus Christ. And we talked about this the last time we gathered This is not just the calling of a select few, those who wear clerical collars and put on robes on Sunday morning. This is the bounden duty and obligation of every single Christian. In fact, I would go so far as to say you really cannot be a Christian or claim to be a Christian if you are not prepared and willing to bear witness to Jesus Christ. That's what we're here for. That's what it's really all about. Now, when the minister says that to the congregation, they get very anxious. The palms begin to sweat. Their mouth goes dry because they're thinking to themselves, I am not prepared to do that. I feel ill-equipped, inadequate to the task. But John the Baptist shows us exactly how we are to do it. And mind you, you don't have to have a theological degree in order to be effective. Sometimes that may be more of a liability, quite frankly, than it will be an asset. Why was John the Baptist such a powerful witness? There are a number of reasons. First of all, John was willing, and we talked about this, but this is just a brief review. John understood that he was not the light. If you're going to be an effective witness for Jesus Christ, on the most basic of levels, you have to realize that you are not the answers to other people's problems. We're told in this text that an official delegation was sent out from Jerusalem. When John went down there into the Jordan River Valley and he was baptizing and preaching, it was a very compelling figure, not only because of what he preached, but the way he dressed. We're told he was dressed in camel's hair and he ate wild locusts and honey. He was just kind of a character. And let's be honest, we're attracted to characters. That's the reason why we all love Lady Grantham in Downton Abbey. I mean, you know, she's a character, and we like characters. We're drawn to that sort of individual. And John the Baptist was a character, and people were drawn to him. In fact, we're told that all of Jerusalem and Judea, 
That whole region went out to hear John. They were cut to the quick. They went down into the waters, respectful people, down into the muddy waters of the Jordan to be baptized by this wild-looking man who had this strange diet and wore this strange wardrobe. And this official delegation is sent out from Jerusalem. Who is this man? Could he be? Could he be the Messiah? They were prepared to name John the Messiah, the Christ. Now, if you know anything about first century history and Judaism in that period, you know that most people expected that the Messiah, when he came, was going to be what? He was going to be a king. He was going to be a military or political Messiah who would be lifted up upon a throne, who would drive out those pagan polytheistic Romans. They were prepared to make John the king. What a temptation that would have been. To say, look at me. We live in a selfie age. We're a me generation. It's all about us. We're so important that we get on social media and take pictures of our breakfast and send it out to all of our friends so that they could see what we had for breakfast this morning. That's the world in which we live. It's all about me. Look at me. What a temptation that would have been for John, but he didn't do it. In fact, we're told he confessed freely, it's not all about me. He said, I must decrease that he might increase. I baptize you with water, but listen, there is one coming after me, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. How many of you have ever said that about any other individual? That's a person whose shoes I'm not worthy to untie. Very few of us would ever say that sort of thing. Be beneath our dignity. But that's what John the Baptist said. And that's one of the reasons why he was an effective witness. If you're going to be an effective witness for Jesus Christ, you have to understand that you are not the light. You simply bear witness to the light. Now, there's no question about the fact that John the Baptist did shine a light. Jonathan Edwards, America's greatest theologian, described him as a burning and a shining lamp. But it's important to understand that the light that he was shining was a reflected light. It was like the light of the moon as opposed to the light of the sun. He simply reflected the light of the one who is the light of the world. If you're going to be an effective witness, you have to understand you're not the answer to other people's problems. You're not their savior. You are at best a signpost pointing to the true destination. So John understood he was not the light. He understood that he came to bear witness to the light. And he came to bear witness to the light that all people, all men and women, might believe in the light. He really stands, if you will, on the periphery for a reason. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, that's how the Holy Spirit works. Of the three persons of the Trinity, who is the most mysterious to us? The Holy Spirit. In fact, most people, when they refer to the Holy Spirit, refer to it as it. Not he. In spite of the fact that the Holy Spirit is always referred to by the emphatic Greek echinos, he The Holy Spirit is a person. Now, He doesn't have a body. But then again, neither do we. When we die and we go to be with the Lord until the great resurrection, we are spirits, but we don't cease to be who we are. The Holy Spirit is a person. It's not an it. I even said that wrong just now. (laughs) He is not an it. He is a person. 
But you know, we understand God the Father, the Creator of the heavens and the earth, and we understand Jesus Christ our Lord who walked among us, who was born in Bethlehem and died on Calvary. We understand all of that, but the Holy Spirit? How many of you are lifelong Episcopalians or Anglicans? How many of you find the Holy Spirit to be a little scary? <laughs> Holy Spirit is frightening to us. We, we, we don't know what to make of the Holy Spirit. Well, one of the reasons why the Holy Spirit is somewhat mysterious to us be, is because of all the persons of the Trinity, He is the shy and reticent one. His job is not to draw attention to Himself. His job is to draw attention to Jesus Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He's the shy and reticent member of the triune Godhead. Now, He is fully God, just as Jesus is fully God. He is fully God, just as the Father is fully God. And yet... His real ministry within the Godhead is to draw people into relationship, to convict them of sin and of the need for righteousness and to draw them into a relationship with the Son by whom they may be redeemed that they might enjoy communion with the Father. John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit and you see that in that he is not drawing attention to himself, he's drawing attention to Jesus Christ. Are you prepared to do that? If somebody were to come up to you today and say, there's something different about you, there's something in your life, I, I'm not quite sure I know what it is, but you're different, you've got a peace, you, you've got a joy, what's the secret to your success? Are you going to draw attention to yourself? Are you going to point to the one who's brought peace to your life, that peace which passes human understanding? That's one of the things that made John a very effective witness. Well, let me set before you some principles for effective witnessing for you and for me today. Like John the Baptist, the first thing is this. We have to recognize that it's not about us. It's not about you. You shine a light, but it is a reflected light. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. I'm going to let you in on the secret of life. I'm going to tell you exactly why you are here. You know, some people spend hundreds of thousands of dollars, billions of dollars are spent on an annual basis with people going to psychiatrists and psychologists, and I think that is a very legitimate science. But many people go there trying to figure out why I'm here. What, what's my purpose on earth? What's my raison d'etre, my reason for being? I'm here to tell you what your reason is. You know, somebody once said, God loves you, and Jeff Miller has a wonderful plan for your life. <laughs> Here's your role. It is to bear witness to Jesus Christ. That's your calling. That's why you were placed here. That's why you were redeemed at countless costs, that you might bear witness to the one whom to know is life everlasting. So recognize it's not about you. Recognize that it involves a verbal witness. Everybody remembers what St. Francis once said. St. Francis once said to his followers, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel and use words if necessary. And everybody says, I like Francis. But the reality is, people will not know why we believe what we believe unless we are prepared to give them an answer for the hope that is within us. You must be prepared to give a verbal witness. It's not enough to live a good life. The world is filled with moral atheists. I once had a member of my congregation in Beaufort, and she had a son-in-law, and he was Jewish. 
He was a devout Jew, as a matter of fact. And she said to me, you know, he's the best Christian I've ever met. (laughs) And what she meant was he lived a very moral life. And he was. He was one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. But he would have told you, like John the Baptist, he would have confessed freely. I don't believe. So it's not enough simply to live a good life, to live a moral, upstanding life. You have to be prepared to bear witness to Jesus Christ. Now, that's where people get really anxious. That's where they feel inadequate. Well, we're going to get to that. We're going to give you some principles that can help you through that. But you need to understand a verbal witness, being willing to share your faith with others, to tell others about Jesus Christ, is an essential part of this. Living a moral life is inadequate. Third thing to remember is this. If you really had an encounter with Jesus Christ, that will lead to a verbal witness. That's one of the things you'll notice whenever you see it in the New Testament. Whenever somebody comes into contact with Jesus Christ and they come to know him, they cannot help but tell other people about him. Even if their knowledge of him is somewhat inadequate, they want to tell others about it. You see this with Paul. Paul is converted on the road to Damascus. Now, he had been persecuting the church. He was leaving Jerusalem out of the Damascus Gate, those of you who have been in Jerusalem. And he was going north toward Damascus, 110 miles away, with the purpose of persecuting the church because he was convinced that this was a damnable deceit, that Jesus Christ was not the true Messiah, that this was a perversion of Judaism. And so he's going up there, and on the road to Damascus, you know he has this encounter with Jesus Christ, He's knocked to his knees, he's blinded, he goes into the city, he has to be led by the hand because he'd heard a voice that said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And the answer came back, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. That's all he knew about Jesus. But then Jesus, we're told, sent a man by the name of Ananias to Damascus to lay his hands on Saul that he might receive his sight Ananias went, somewhat haltingly, I might add, and he laid his hands on Saul, prayed for him. Something like scales fell from his eyes, but more importantly, something like chains fell from Saul's heart, and all of a sudden, he knew that Jesus Christ really was the Messiah. Now, he didn't know anything more about Jesus than that, and yet the text in Acts says immediately he began to preach Jesus. Immediately. You see this throughout the Gospels. Whenever Jesus did something extraordinary and people witnessed it, they could not help but tell others about it. Every time Jesus raised somebody from the dead, he said, now listen, I don't want you to tell anybody about this. How many of you would be successful in that? If you you saw somebody raised from the dead, how many of you, even if Jesus said, now don't tell anybody about this, would find that you were capable of containing the secret? And they didn't. They always went out and told people about it, in spite of the fact that he said, because they could not contain what had happened. If you've had an encounter with Jesus Christ, you're not going to be able to contain it. There may be much that you don't understand, much that you don't comprehend, but you know that much. It's like the blind man in in this gospel that we'll encounter later on. Jesus healed him. He didn't even know who Jesus was. Jesus healed him. And because Jesus healed him on the Sabbath, the officials bring the man in and they said, who healed you? Well, I don't know. This man, they they say his name is Jesus. Say that he's a bad man. Why? I can't say that he's a bad man. Well, Well, he healed on the Sabbath. He's not supposed to heal on the Sabbath. 
That's a breaking of the law. Say that he's a bad man. And it's interesting what the blind man says. He said, bad man, good man, I don't know. But what I do know is this. I once was blind, but now I see. Listen, if you're a Christian, you can say that much. If you've encountered Jesus Christ, you can say that much. You can say, I once was blind, but now I see. Good man, bad man, I don't know, but that much I know. And that's the first step in witnessing. Now, I say it's the first step because it's by no means the last step. Once you've come to meet Jesus Christ, you need to grow in your relationship with him. And as you grow in your relationship with Christ, you're going to be a more effective witness for Christ. And to be a more effective witness for Christ, there are a number of things that you must have, a number of tools that you have to have, if you will, in your armory. First of all, you've got to witness to who Jesus Christ is. When somebody says, who is this Jesus that you're always talking about? You need to be able to tell them who it is. It's the same way as introducing to somebody else. Brian McGreevy and Justin Hare don't know each other. I'm going to introduce them. I'm going to say, Justin, this is my friend Brian McGreevy. Brian McGreevy has a life's desire to be like C.S. Lewis. And <laughs> what will happen then is I'm introducing them. They know something about And this is Justin. He's a Duke grad, and he's obsessed with golf. <laughs> they know something about each other because I know something about them. The same is true when it comes to Jesus Christ. The more we get to know him, the more we will know about him. Again, Paul didn't know much at the beginning, but by the end of his life, he knew Jesus intimately, and he was able to tell the world about Jesus Christ. You need to be able to tell the world about Jesus Christ, and that starts with who Jesus Christ is, that he is, in fact, the second person of the triune Godhead. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. Jesus is not just some moral exemplar. Jesus is not just some prophetic individual. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. And he is our heart's desire. So you begin by witnessing to who he is, the Son of God. You also begin by witnessing to what he has done. What has Jesus Christ done? Well, first of all, he came, he was born, he taught in the world, that much is true. But really what's crucial here is that he died. That he died, that he rose again, that he ascended, and that he's coming again in glory at the end of the age. We call this the mystery of faith. Now, if you've been raised in the Anglican tradition or the Episcopal tradition, you know this. What's the mystery of faith? Therefore, we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. There it is. If you're going to witness to Jesus Christ, you need to witness to who He is. He is the Son of God, and this is what He came to do. To die, to rise, and to come again. To die for your sin and for mine as the propitiation for all our wrongdoings. To redeem us from the power of sin and death. He rose again for our justification, defeating the powers of sin and death. These things no longer have a stranglehold on our lives. And one day he is coming again to set this broken and fallen world right. To sit upon his throne and for those who belong to him to wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
you're going to be an effective witness for Jesus Christ, you need to know who he is. You need to understand what he did. You know, we often talk about Jesus' teachings, and his Jesus' teachings are very important. But, you know, the only reason we listen to what Jesus said is because of what Jesus did. You know, we call the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Jesus was not the first person to say that sort of thing. But we pay special attention to the fact that Jesus said it because of what he did. That's why we focus not on the... You notice in the creed, when we stand up and say the creed, whether it's the Apostles' Creed at baptism or the Nicene Creed during Holy Communion, did you ever notice we're, we're rehearsing the whole life of Jesus in that creed? You notice we never mention his teaching? Did you ever notice in the, in the creed there's no mention of Jesus' teaching? I mean, he was here for three years. He taught. He was renowned as a teacher. They referred to him as rabbi, which means teacher. He did parables and stories. and They were, they were powerful stories about camels creeping through the eye of a needle. And yet we don't talk about the teaching. We talk about what Jesus did. That's why we pay attention to the teaching. So you witness to what he has done. You also witness to how someone can come to know him. I've said this so many times, but I cannot repeat it enough. Christianity is not about religion, folks. It is about a relationship. It is about knowing God, having a personal relationship with him as intimate or more so than the relationship you have with your spouse or your children. And if you don't believe me, that's what's true. If you take Jesus Christ out of Christianity, do you realize the whole thing falls apart? There's nothing there that is unique if you take Jesus Christ out of Christianity. Now, you can take Buddha out of Buddhism and you've still got the principles of the religion. You can take Muhammad out of Islam and you've still got the principles of the religion. But if you take Jesus Christ out of the picture, then it's nothing but an empty frame. John Stott said it's like a casket without a jewel. It's like looking at an engagement ring setting, but there's no stone. It may have some elements of beauty, but the real gem is gone. Christianity is about knowing God. That's the beauty of this. You can actually have a relationship, an ongoing, abiding, fulfilling relationship sustained relationship with the Lord of glory, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And let me tell you something, that will change you. And that's what this is all about. So you need to be able to witness to who Jesus is, what he came to do, and how a person can come to know him. And let me tell you a good place to start. You're like, well, where do I start? with your family. Now that can be the most frightening prospect of all. But that is a good place to start. In fact, that is exactly what we see happening in the text that we have before us today. I want you to look at verses 35 and following again. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. That's exactly what John is saying. Don't look at me. I'm not the answer. There's the Lamb of God. 
He's the one that takes away the sin of the world. He tells us what Jesus does. And what do they do? They leave John and they follow Jesus. That's exactly what it means to witness. That's what we want to do. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and you will see. And so they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first, look at how the text puts it, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah. So there you have it. John the Baptist introduces two of his disciples to Jesus. That's the one who takes away the sin of the world. That's what he's come to do. They leave John. They follow Jesus. But having come to know Jesus, they said, where are you staying? Jesus says, come and see. They go and they spend time with Jesus. They get to know Jesus. And the first thing that Andrew does is he goes and he finds his brother. And he said, we have found the one who is the what? The Messiah, the Savior of the world. That's a principle for effective witnessing. You don't know where to begin? Start in your own family. How many of you have members of your own family who are not walking with the Lord? Then that's the place to start. That's one place to start. You can start right there with your own family. Why should you start with their family? First of all, it's because they're familiar. You don't have to get to know them. You already know them. Another reason why you would want to witness to your family members is because they're dear to you. They're dear to you, especially if they're your children. You are particularly concerned for your children. You want them to walk with the Lord. The way you look at it, heaven won't be heaven if they're not there. So that's a good place to start. Here's another reason why you can start with your family. It's because it's often the way that God calls whole families. You know, I may have been introduced to Jesus Christ by somebody outside my family, but it was the means by which God is going to call the rest of my family because now that I've come... There's a great illustration of this in the book of Acts where Paul and his traveling companion Silas have been imprisoned in Philippi. You know that story? They're in the jail... And they're singing praises to the Lord. Most of us would be fearful, praying for deliverance. They're praising God. They're confident that in their life or in their death, God is going to be glorified. And God intervenes. There's this great earthquake. We're told the foundations of the jail were shaken. Those of you who've been to Philippi, you've stood on that site. And we're told their fetters came off. And the door flew open. The lights went out. The jailer came in, drawing his sword to take his own life. Because according to Roman law, if you were a jailer or a soldier and you lost your prisoners or your charges, you had to forfeit your own life. And you'd much rather take your life than allow somebody else to do it. So he's ready to take his life, plunge his sword into his belly. When Paul cries out, we're all here, do not be afraid. And we're told that the jailer came in trembling. And he fell before Paul, and he asks what I call the most direct question in all of Scripture. Sir, what must I do to be saved? And the answer is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And then we're told he took them, 
he dressed their wounds, and he was baptized. He, listen to this, and his whole family. Which meant that having encountered Jesus Christ, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He comes to know Jesus Christ, and he wants to share the good news with his family, and the whole family is saved. That's a marvelous story. Well, what God did back in the first century, he still does in the 21st century. Start with your family. Now, I'm well aware of the fact that sometimes that is difficult. Why? Because you know them, but they also know you. And especially if you have lived a somewhat notorious life and you've had a conversion, people are a little skeptical. Oh, don't come to me preaching at me. I know you. I remember when. I want you to understand the Apostle Paul dealt with that his entire ministry. His entire ministry. He said, I am the least of the apostles, not even worthy to be called an apostle. And that's what people were always doing, throwing up in his face, oh, Paul, oh, yes, you're, you're real excited about Jesus today, but we remember what you did with Stephen. We remember where you were going on the road to Damascus. You're the man who dismantled the church. You're the man who persecuted Christians. You're the man who's responsible for the death of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. Well, you have to be prepared for that. Sometimes in your family, that's what you're going to get. <laughs> oh, yes. I know you. Nevertheless, nevertheless, family, if they're dear to you, if they're precious to you, is a good place to start. And if you're going to be effective with ministering to your family, well, like those two who left John and followed Jesus, you're going to have to spend time with him. Because the more time you spend with Jesus, the more genuine the change will be in your life. And if the change is genuine, eventually not even your family members are going to be able to deny it. They will see that a change has taken place in you. I have seen this over and over again. Here's something else when you're ministering to your family. You don't have to use clever techniques. I want you to notice how Andrew did it with Peter. Come, see a man that I've met who is the Messiah. And Peter said, how do I know? And he said, what? Come and see. Come and see for yourself. You're going to hear about that in the sermon today. Those of you who are at the earlier service, you heard it. Powerful sermon today about coming and seeing. Where did Andrew learn to say that sort of thing? Where did he learn that that was an effective way of ministering? Come and see. Where did he learn that? From Jesus. Because earlier in the same text, these two are following Jesus. He turns around and he says, what do you want? And they said, where are you staying? And he said, come and see. Invite people to come and see. If you came to faith in Jesus Christ at St. Philip's, invite them to come and see it for themselves. To encounter him. To enjoy the eternal life that you have found. I'll end with one story here. It is about Thomas Huxley. Anybody know who Thomas Huxley was? Thomas Huxley, not Aldous Huxley, who died in 1963 on the same day as C.S. Lewis and JFK, 
This is Thomas Huxley. Thomas Huxley was a world-renowned skeptic in the 19th century. He was a scientist, and he became known as Darwin's bulldog. All right, that's who Thomas Huxley was. He was a world-renowned skeptic, and he went around debunking religion, and in particular, Christianity. Well, the story goes that one day he was staying out in the country at one of those grand English country houses, a lot like Downton Abbey. It was a country shooting party, and Huxley was there. And it was Sunday, and of course this was Victorian England, and on Sunday, what did people do? Oh, they were out shooting grouse on Saturday, but the next day they got up and everybody went to the parish church. And so everybody is getting ready to go to church, and Huxley's feeling a little sheepish because everybody's going and he doesn't want to go because he doesn't believe any of this. And there is a man there as part of the party. He's a quiet man. Um, he was part of the family. He was respectable, but he was a devout Christian. And he had sort of befriended Huxley, talked to Huxley. And so at breakfast, Huxley said, I know everybody's getting ready to go to church, but let me make a proposal to you, he said to this man. He said, um, would you be willing to stay home from church today? The man said, no, I, I can't do that. It's the Lord's Day, I'm going to church. He said, no, listen, why don't you just stay home with me? You know, I'm a skeptic. You know, I'm a skeptic. Why, why don't you stay home with me and tell me why you believe all of this? And the man said, no, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that because you're going to be able to demolish every single argument that I have. That, that's, that's what you do. You go around debunking things, and, and I'm just not equipped to deal with you. And Huxley said, I'll make you a deal. I will not say a single word. All I want is for you to tell me why you believe this. And so everyone went off the church, and this man stayed with Huxley. They sat down in the library, and that man began to share what Jesus Christ had done in his life. He didn't come with any clever arguments. He didn't come with a whole list of answers to questions. He simply told Huxley what Jesus Christ meant to him and what Jesus Christ had done for him. And at the end of that session, the story goes, Huxley had tears running down his cheeks. And he said, I would give my right arm if I could believe like you believe. Now, there's no indication that Huxley ever became a believer. But on the other hand, he could not help but be moved by that man's sincerity and by the work of the Holy Spirit in his life. The same can be true for you. There are people out there in the world, just like Thomas Huxley, who should be able to see something different in your life. There's just something special. There's a spark. and They don't understand what it is, but they want to know, are you prepared to do what that man did? Set aside your plans sit down and simply share with them what Jesus Christ has done for you. The Bible makes this promise, the word of the Lord never comes back void or empty. What we need, perhaps more than anything else, is not to be educated. What we need, perhaps more than anything else, is courage. The opportunities are before us, 
everywhere we turn, plenty of opportunities wherever you are. You've been planted somewhere, folks. You've been planted somewhere. You have an opportunity, you have a responsibility to share the good news. Simply tell them what Jesus Christ has done for you, how he saved you, and how they can come to know him, who, as I said, to know is eternal life. That's what we're here for. That's our raison d'etre. That's our reason for being. And when you begin to do it, you find a joy and a satisfaction that nothing else in this life can ever, ever come close to. And I give you that charge, especially as we head into the summer. We're not here together, but there are going to be lots of opportunities for you. Some of them are going to be right across your breakfast table. Some of them are going to be as you travel from place to place. I know some of you get in RVs and you travel all over the country. You're going to meet all sorts and conditions of men and women. Here's your opportunity. Some of you are going to your summer houses. This is your opportunity. Whoever you meet, be that burning and shining lamp. Be that witness to Jesus Christ. If you know him, share him for Jesus' sake. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for your mercy and for your grace. We thank you for the witness of John the Baptist, Andrew, Peter, all those who down through the centuries many of whom were not educated men, but men whose lives have been transformed, men who were willing, women who were willing, like the Samaritan woman at the well, to share what Jesus Christ had done for them. Grant us the grace, the courage to see the opportunities. Lord, sometimes we need the imagination to see the opportunities. But sometimes we're even convicted that here's an opportunity, but we are fearful of speaking. Give us the courage to speak. We may come away thinking that we were absolute fools, that we blew it, but we know that we're not the ones that save anybody. John the Baptist knew he was not the Savior. You promised to use even our most feeble efforts to bring others into fellowship with you. Grant us courage, Lord. We live in a dark time. We live in a time in which people are lost, needy, frustrated, angry. They need the salve of the gospel. We are the ones who are to apply that medicine to the hurts of the world. Grant us the grace to do it. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.